today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. It's official cannabis now legal in Canada. The first sale occurred in St. John's, Newfoundland this morning. Going to play you a clip now. This is the stuff that happened in Newfoundland uh, earlier on, I guess at 12 o'clock. <laughs> you know, this reminded me of like watching a New Year's Eve special. It's like when they start on one side of the country when, you know, oh, it, it, it's a new year here. And then it just goes from province to province or state to state or what have you, uh, depending on what you're watching. And it, it, this sort of reminded me of the same thing. Here's what happened in Newf- uh, uh, Newfoundland uh, as the first legal purchase was made in the country just after midnight at uh, Tweed Cannabis Store in St. John's. Uh, you're going to hear the voice of Canopy Growth CEO Bruce Linton making the sale. And the first customer is Ian Power. The female voice next to him is his girlfriend. You did it and your did it. The first Where's your receipt? receipt? The first legal receipt awesome. issued in Canada. Thank you. And in your bags, you will have the Health Canada information and you will have your product. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Congratulations. You made this. We all made this. We all made this. Thank you. Uh, not only history, but also great advertisement for Tweed, I might add. Here's what uh, uh, singer Ashley McIsaac, or sorry, uh, musician Ashley McIsaac had to say in regard to uh, his experience with cannabis. i got quite a few years yet, and I hope someday that uh, just like you can buy a Wayne Gretzky wine, you can buy an Ashley McIsaac brand of marijuana. There you go. Uh, lots of people, uh, of course, uh, you know, it's interesting, too. We, we think about the social aspect of this. We think of the health aspect of this. Uh, but even yesterday, talking to some of the different businesses, especially one here in Hamilton, uh, it is amazing how this has tentacles in sort of all aspects of Canadian life. Let's bring in Dan Malik, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, no problem, Scott. How you so doing? when's the next book coming out, Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation <laughs> of Public Smoking or uh, yeah. Cannabis or whatever? Well, give me a few years because I'm a historian, right? I have to like look back. It will, take, it, it will take a little while before we see how this all pans out, won't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even the fact that in Ontario, we won't have retail sales until April means that there will be something different happening then. And then there will also be something different happening when edibles are legal in July 2019. Right. So it's it's a very interesting phasing out of cannabis or phasing in, I guess, of legal. Very much a soft launch, considering really you can't get it anywhere today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think the... Unless the, you got like some sort of speedy Canada Post delivery system. I mean, I don't know. How fast yeah. do they deliver it? Is Can you get uh, an overnighter on one of these? I don't think so. I think the the expectation was that it would be sent out the day after you order. I, I, I'm not quite sure if that's the case. I do know that the, the website crashed this morning, but it was up by the time I got to campus because a colleague was sitting there... Tr- just out of academic curiosity. Absolutely. It's your job. You have to do Absolutely. your research. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you think it's odd that Canada Post is talking about a strike right about now? I think it's uh, really unfortunate, to, um, but maybe. I, I don't know if there would be, if, they're, if you're suggesting they're trying to sort of leverage this concern. That's exactly what I'm suggesting here. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I really can't say one way or another 
All right. How significant? Yeah, I was talking earlier. You and I were talking about when uh, alcohol was available in the grocery stores, and and how everybody wasn't really sure what to expect. And of course, it was just a big yawn fest. The sun mm-hmm. came up and set, and set just as it normally does. Yeah. Is this different? Uh, it it is and it isn't. I mean, I, when I woke up this morning, I looked outside, you know, t- with temerity at the student housing across the street, and everything was fine. Um, but uh, <laughs> what did you expect to see, Dad, from the from the student housing? It's, ra- it's like all of a sudden mania. it looks like Animal House, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that would be the booze thing, right? Yeah. No, um, it, no. I, I mean, it's it's different in that it's a different product. People consume it differently. Um, it was it has never been legal as long as it's been popular. Um, there's whole different cultures around cannabis that do not exist that did not exist around alcohol. Um, during the relatively brief in Canada prohibition period, right? So the people who were lining up down the streets and around the corners at uh, at uh, uh, liquor stores in 1927 in Ontario were people who most, many of whom had experience with um, consuming it legally before prohibition, right? So, uh, and it and it generally creates different behavior in people than alcohol did. So the worries about like mad partying on the streets. Reefer um, madness. Yeah, is generally not something we will see. I mean, there's some argument from some people that, you know, depending on what you expect your ingestion of an intoxicant to do, sometimes that affects how you how you end up actually behaving. They mm. call this a placebo effect, right? It's sort of yeah. a placebo script, as someone called it. But, mm. but yeah, so I'm, so we're not going to see, I, I would suspect, we're, it, it's different in that way, right? It's, it's a different type of substance. It's a different type of legalization. But what I think is fascinating about this is that people who are skeptical about, um, uh, you know, people who, who consume cannabis not really wanting to, uh, get you know, you know, go out to a, a regular everyday store, stand in line, go through the process of buying it. They were in line. They were lined yeah. up in Halifax and hey, look, Ma, there's before. my teacher standing in line <laughs> at the cannabis shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but yeah. So I mean, it, it there is a certain degree of you know what I've talked about in the past about how people would rather do it legally, even if it's a little more difficult than. Um, and this is a general statement, then uh, go to illegal um, sources as long as it's convenient enough for them to do it. And one of the things we're seeing in Ontario right now is it's not very convenient, right? Well, it certainly isn't today because you can't get it. Yeah. So, again, does it really even matter? Because, hey, it's legal, but it, it but it's you, you can't get it. The it only way, the you know, I mean, you can wait, I guess, till the end of the week till your mail order arrives. Yeah, but yeah. it just seems kind of odd, doesn't it? It it, it is odd. Um, it's um, I you know, personally think that it was a kind of a bad call on the current government to just completely reverse the Ontario Cannabis Store because what's going to happen. I suggest, and you know how much I love to make predictions, mm-hmm. is um, there will be people, well, there were people out smoking in public yesterday, and I doubt if any of that was legally consumed. No. Right? Well, anything that you, you, you know, you have to think anything that's being consumed today, whether it's public or not, mm-hmm. if it's not medic- medicinal, right. it's, it's illegal. That's right. And if, if you're using medicinal cannabis that a friend of you gave you or whatever, that's illegal too, right? So, so, is so. It? I didn't know that. Uh, well, yeah, I, I don't think you can share. I guess your, it's not a good idea to share your prescriptions, is it? No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it depends on what it is. Uh, it depends on where you are and who you're hanging out with. Yeah, I guess. The yeah. color of the pill and the use of the pill. But um, also we'll have people coming across the border looking for cannabis, and it's going to be hard for them. You know, Americans coming to Canada 
probably won't want to be giving their personal information to a government website that mm. then tracks, even if it's Good not point, shared yeah. with the U.S., right? So what we may also see, I mean, I'm here in St. Catharines, and it could very well be that the the black market for cannabis might actually crank up a bit. Around well, that's what I'm thinking. How do you think the government feels that between now and April, whatever, that people are going to be consuming this, but it's all illegal, or most of it, or a lot of it? I, I I, I hesitate to imply any feelings in the government or any thoughts in the government just because I don't know, right? I'm not trying to insult the they're government. Not <laughs> they're not listening. Oh, I don't care if they're listening. If they're listening, like, let me start. Dan, talking. you're getting paranoid. <laughs> but, no, but I, I, but I, I don't know if, if that was even sort of a thought-out process or if it was more about just yeah. we're not going the way the previous government went, which is sometimes what new governments do. Yeah. Um, but I think that th- that is a big gap uh, and, a, and a possibly an unrecognized gap is that if you make something legal and you make it available only in certain ways, then you're really open, you're maintaining or even opening up a uh, opportunity for illegal selling. Um, it's also something we in the humanities and social sciences call a uh, bourgeois conceit, right? Mm. Which is where people with a certain economic status and who have access to things yeah. like a computer and the internet and that, they assume everyone does or they create policy without recognizing that some people don't have that access, right? Um, and this is one of the challenges. And even, you know, well-off Americans coming across, like I said, they probably won't want to be even if they did have an address to have it sent to in Canada, they probably will be reluctant to be mm. uh, to doing this stuff, right? So there's going to be a bit of a market for that. It'll be interesting to see how the police deal with it. They may be all prepared for it. I, I don't know. I haven't spoken to the police about it. Um, how is the rest of the world viewing this? Uh, there's a lot of curiosity. There's a lot of interest. I mean, as you know, we... Is the world watching us? One of the headlines yeah. today was the world is watching us. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. They're really uh, interested in how this is unfolding. A lot of countries are contemplating dealing with cannabis in a different way. Um, a, a number of countries have various levels of um, looseness around enforcement of laws um, or around things like I think one of the classic examples is in Holland where you can smoke it in a coffee shop, but those coffee shops actually can't get it legally, right? Mm. So you can buy it legally from someone who's bought it illegally, but well, it's sort of a general, yeah, sorry. Well, and when you think about it, Dan, and, and I was talking to some businesses about this yesterday, mm. that the, the, whole, the, the whole realm of legalization, what it does is it allows them to conduct business. It allows commerce to happen. And, yeah. and how big an advantage is this to Canada to have a head start in this industry? Oh, it's huge. And, and the fact that we've had um, a medical marijuana industry that uh, was highly regulated and therefore can really legitimately present itself as a responsible um, um, producer of this product also helps. Um, and if we look at the end of prohibition uh, of alcohol, um, Canadian manufacturers were already making it because there was, uh, it was permitted to be uh, made for export markets and other markets. So when the, and, and then when it was legal in Canada, and when the U.S. prohibition ended, it hadn't been legal to make it there. Um, so there was a massive market, especially with things like whiskey that has to be warehoused for a few years anyway. Like the Canadian whiskey just flooded the market. So this does give Canadian, not only Canadian growers, but it, it creates an expertise that can be exported as well, right? Um, so you have people, I mean, we have colleges that start talking about yeah. cannabis business, but there will be a developing expertise in the um, in the agriculture of cannabis, 
um, as well as marketing and in the chemistry of cannabis that will be um, will be uh, exportable. So we will see Canadians, I suspect, um, going abroad to help when if um, uh, businesses are opening up or even when medical marijuana um, is uh, legalized in different countries. Is there a downside to this, Dan, that we're missing? Um, You know, lots have looked at this from a political standpoint and said that, you know, this is a huge win for Trudeau, providing nothing really happens and all goes smoothly. Are we missing something here? Well, I I think that the key point that you said is providing not everything goes smoothly. Um, It's hard to predict if there's a downside uh, that... um, um, in sort of enforcement things like that, uh, but what will be happening is people will be looking for things to be going wrong, right? Right. And, and yeah. because if it is a big win for Trudeau, then you can guarantee that at least one of the opposition parties is going to be sure. ready to jump on any problems, right? Um, possibly more opposition parties. I don't know, but um, because they're going to be saying, "Oh, sure, we legalized it, and look what's happened now." And you know how the media works. You know this business. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's um, they jump on. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. So they'll jump on those those stories and, and make them big, even if they're not. But you know, uh, there also seems to be a general consensus from various authorities, such as public health, that this is generally a good thing. Although we're getting some interesting stuff from groups like the Canadian Medical Association in its journal making some really weird statements about if anyone <laughs> if any consumption increases the law should be considered a failure which is mm. the weirdest thing i've heard in a long time well how can it not well it, exactly right and it's it's kind of a, a ridiculous excessive statement saying that if any um, consumption increases because it suspect it suggests that any consumption is bad consumption right and that's exactly what the yeah. policy is designed to sort of deal with is dealing with bad consumption or like using a product, you know, children using it or, or right, products yeah. that are properly um, evaluated or, or tested or whatever, um, not just any consumption. How hard will it be? Because obviously this is all about keeping it out of the hands of the black market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to do that, they've got to keep costs down, but they obviously want to tax this product and make revenue off of it. How hard is it going to be to keep the costs down? I've read stories that in, in places like California, it's incredibly expensive. Now it's a different scenario there because it's not legal in mm-hmm. countrywide, so to speak. Is that going to be a huge challenge for them? I don't think so. It does depend on the size of the market. So again, if that CMAJ editors thing about the increase in in uh, users uh, comes to uh, comes to pass, which it will, um, that that might if if more people are if if more if there's more demand, then it will increase the you know sure. the, what's it called the supply and demand. Yeah, the, well, yeah, the supply and demand, but also uh, the the. I've lost the term when you have when you're making a lot of a product, it drives down the individual price, right? Yeah. Um, so that could be the case. Um, governments have been there was a bit of a pile on as far as taxes go at the start, which I think they've sort of backed off, recognizing that if you overtax this product, it's going to encourage the black market. Um, so, but but we also have large companies that do have the. Um, the ability now and, and the expertise and, and the experience and the technology and stuff like that to keep the, the price relatively low. Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking and Post-Prohibition Ontario. Dan, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Got you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Paul Bernardo's name in the news and everybody, especially in this area, they just cringe when they hear that name. Uh, At a parole hearing today after spending 25 years in prison for the deaths of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, of course, the Scarborough rapist as well. Uh, He, along with uh, then-wife Carla Homolka, making the headlines uh, 25 years ago. He was deemed a dangerous offender back then, and I remember talking to a lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families, Tim Danson, saying, there's no way this guy's getting out yet. We have to go through this again, although I do believe there's laws that have come into play since Bernardo's conviction that might change some of this. To talk more about it, Ari Goldkind is with us, us, Toronto defense lawyer. Do we got him? Oh, sorry, I'm having problems with my phone. It's okay. I'm right here. Ari, are you there? Earth to Ari. Hello, Scott. I am not in a purple or green haze, depending (laughs) on your particular brand today. Everybody's making jokes about that in the workplace today. It's kind of funny. All right. And by the way, I think it's all very, very interesting ideologically, but do I think everybody's turning into Snoop Dogg today? No. It's going to be interesting. You think how historic, since we brought it up, how historic a day do you think this is for Canada? Is the rest of the world watching us? Well, I think so, and I'll be very short on this because I know we're going to talk about Bernardo. I actually think this is a very good day for two reasons. One, it allows people who were never criminals, who should never have been thought of as criminals, to actually now not be criminalized, whether it's people who smoke a joint today or have done it 20 years ago and have paid the price by not getting jobs. And we should, we should just point out that those people will now be able to get a pardon uh, at right. no cost to them. So, so obviously so that's... That's a, very, that's a very good day today. And the other reason I think it's a good day, and this is a bit of an unusual answer that people don't like, but I don't care, is because our government has done something very good today. And our government deserves, in a day and age of anti-social media and Twitter, when a government does something right... It deserves praise. And for all of the things that I think the Trudeau government often gets wrong, I think they really deserve a lot of praise today for how they've handled this file. And I'll stop there. All right. Now I got to have a follow up to that because I'm going to play devil's advocate. How can this possibly be right? Ari will scream the other side. Uh, Everybody's going to be blasted, blah, 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 blah. How is this uh, a breakthrough day for Canada? I'll tell you why. Because first of all, and again, my personal bias should be clear to people. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. The idea that smoking a joint, which has very few negative effects on most people, is an illegal substance in small qualities, and people have to go get their fake doctor's note to have medicinal marijuana. When you look at what the effects throughout our country are of the legalized substance known as alcohol, what it does to our roads and the scourge of drinking and driving, what it does to men's tempers and impulse control, when they drink and often become violent, how that, because of gigantically huge beer and alcohol companies, is legal, while marijuana was illegal, to me was a joke of jokes. All right, let's leave it there because we do want to talk about the Bernardo. I remember yes, when I'm we being very short. I, and no, that's cool. And and I and I took you that direction. What um, I remember when this case uh, was before the courts twenty five years ago, and and I remember talking to Tim Dance and saying that you know they had prepared for this day way back then, and he of course then was uh, declared a dangerous offender. Why are we going through this now? Is there a chance that Paul Bernardo could get out? So there is as much chance, Scott, of Paul Bernardo getting out today or tomorrow as there is of you and me meeting at Pearson Airport, getting into a space shuttle, and flying to the moon tonight to meet Matt Damon and Ryan Gosling. So that's important. 
for us to understand right now that there's absolutely no chance of it. However, and again, many people might disagree with me on this, and it's okay. It is not a bad thing in our system that even when somebody got life in jail with no chance of parole for 25 years, or a dangerous offender, which we can talk about, because there's very few people with that label in Canada, Scott, that after 25 years or some other period of time, because Bernardo can do this every two years now, they have the ability to take up three, four hours of a parole board's time. So when you're saying we're going through this, I'm not so sure, and I'm not saying this to you to be critical, I'm not so sure we're going through anything. The French and the happy families are. Bingo. The, fa- the families of the 14 women who were raped. And we're not talking this day and age of Me Too, of an unwanted sexual advance leading to the destruction of a person. We're talking full-blown rape, as the word should still be properly in our criminal code, but to me was horribly removed. He has no chance of getting out, but should somebody else who perhaps did something when they were 18 or 19 or 21 that got them befitting of a life sentence, could they or should they still be able to apply for parole? Yes. The fact that there's a hearing today for a few hours where the parole board's going to tell them to go stick it where the sun doesn't shine, I have no problem with that. I understand exactly what you're saying, Ari, but... I thought, again, what's the purpose of having the dangerous offender? That's one question. The second is, was this is about the families, too. Do the families have to participate in this? Do they feel guilty that if they don't participate and something happens or that they have to have their, uh, their story heard again? Yeah. Uh, and it reopens these wounds year after year. Does the family have to go through that? Let me answer it the best way that I can. And again, I'm not going to speak for the family because nobody listening to our sh- to our broadcasting on this issue today has a clue what it's like to be the French or Mahaffey family. Do they have to show up in Kingston today? One million percent no. Do they have a lawyer who could do their talking for him? He's done it for years. He's been their family for God knows it, their lawyer for how many years. However, as much as I say, why don't they just stay home? They know he's not getting out. Tim Danson has told them. He's not getting out. There's nobody who thinks he's getting out. His own lawyer knows he's not getting out. Why bother schlepping all the way to Kingston, knowing this and putting your through yourself, put it, being in the same room with him, theoretically? And the answer to that, and I can only imagine this, Scott, so nobody should think I have any inside baseball knowledge, I think they probably feel they owe it to their daughters, to their loved ones, to be in that room and not let them be forgotten and to look into the evil that is Mr. Bernardo. But realistically, do they have to be there? Not for one single solitary second. Uh, is it is the law different now? Is yes. if Paul Bernardo if Paul Bernardo was charged with these crimes today, would it be different? Very much so. And you and I have talked about this on different segments throughout the past about how the laws have really changed. And as much as he seems to now only be on U.S. TV by Stephen Harper, our former Canadian. Prime Minister, where he in 2011, and he deserves a lot of credit for this. If you're a murderer and you murder more than one person, particularly when you do it on different days and in different ways, not, for example, as part of a mass shooting, which arguably in our courts can be considered one incident, he changed the law to say, look, even though the maximum sentence we have is life in jail, didn't matter how many lives you took, Scott, you could still apply for parole after 25 years. 
And as, for example, I'll say a name that you know, and I think all of your listeners will know, Delvin Millard. Mm -hmm. Delvin Millard has now gone down for killing three people on different days, and he cannot apply for parole for 75 years. So if Paul Bernardo was convicted of this today, Scott, you and I would not be doing this segment, and that's a very, very good thing, but the laws of the land are as they were, and for dangerous offenders, which you asked me very briefly before, why, if you're a dangerous offender, should you even be able to apply? First of all, people should realize that the percentages of dangerous offenders who get out is like nothing. It's like 1% on a good day, 2% on a bad day. However, what you want to do, even with a dangerous offender, is you never want to take away somebody's hope that if they change their ways or if they do pro-social or better things in jail, they have a faint hope. That's the word that's in the criminal code. They know they're probably not going to get out, but I just think, Scott, you have to have people as they rot in jail trying to do things that are good rather than knowing that no matter what they do, it makes no difference. That doesn't make for a positive jail environment. What is, uh, can you clarify the dangerous offender status, what it means? Yes, and I do a lot of these hearings, so it's something that's sort of near and dear to me because it's a very interesting area of law that I won't bore any of your listeners about. Very simply put, the easiest way I can explain it is I think a lot of people listening to this, and maybe, Scott, you've seen the movie Minority Report, and that's where Tom Cruise is the cop who arrests people that their technology shows are thinking of doing bad crimes, and you arrest them before they do it. That's sort of the easiest analogy. You don't have to have murder be in the picture, Scott. For example, there could be a young man who's shown a proclivity to raping or assaulting young women. All they have to do is get convicted of it once, and the Crown can bring a dangerous offender application, which at its core is that no matter what we do with this guy, no matter what we do with this guy, and it's always a guy, let's be honest, his risk in the community is so unmanageable that we can't let him out of jail ever because if we do, we're serving up another young woman to be violated. That's where the dangerous offender idea comes from. And if the Crown gets that person called a dangerous offender, that they meet these criteria that, again, I won't get into, the judge has three choices. Let them out after a certain period of time. Let them out never on an indeterminate sentence where the issue of parole is what we've been talking about way, way, way off in the future when you're an old person. Or number two is where you're released into the community on what's called a long-term sentence offender order, which all it means in English is different than regular parole where you can live out willy-nilly among you, me, Scott Thompson, and all your listeners. You essentially have a series of reporting, testing, Uh, probationary parole kind of conditions where you're being heavily, heavily managed in the community, maybe forced to take drugs, forced to take counseling that reduce your risk. That's dangerous offender in a nutshell, which is preventing somebody from going out and doing something that is very predictable for them to do. Uh, We heard on the news in the last uh, day or so in regard to new uh, guidelines in and around segregation. What's life like for Paul Bernardo in prison? He has been segregated from the the rest of the prison population for this time. it should be, but the reason that has happened, Scott, is not because of anything to do with Paul Bernardo. It's because at that jail, he is target number one 
for yeah. every inmate in there, particularly the ones, Scott, that know they're never getting out, link back to what I just said a couple minutes ago, yeah. he is literally a target. This is interesting for people to hear, and I want to make sure they understand this. Different than you or me who couldn't imagine killing somebody, many of the inmates in that jail, if they simply walk by him in the hall, he is public enemy number one. Even in the jail, they would take him out in a second. So he's been in solitary, uh, which arguably is where he theoretically would belong, but I use that loosely because obviously solitary has been overused for many people who are mentally ill or when a bunch of correction officers just are calling in sick and don't go to work. So this for his protection as opposed to anything that he's done or his behavior? One million percent. Uh, That being said, is it still humane? I mean, I don't know what the answer is here, but would this still get an argument from those that feel it's inhumane for him to be away from the rest of the prison population? Leaving aside people's blood blood thirst, which I think is justified when it comes to him, I don't know that there's another option, Scott. So when you're dealing with an imperfect system trying to come up with a perfect solution, the duty of corrections, I feel, at its highest, if I was in charge of corrections, is we have to do what we do to protect him, even though he's the worst of the worst, to serve him up, to be carved up by others, while many people listening to this would say he has it coming, more power to them, that's the best thing that could happen. I don't want to live in a country where our correction service or our government agents allow that to happen, even though I would agree that anecdotally or maybe biblically he has it coming. That being said, uh, that versus spending the rest of your life in that cell that he is in, I don't know. I, uh, oh, <laughs> at no, the, no. At the end of the day, I know, I we can debate this till the cows come no, home. No, no, I agree with yeah, you completely. Yeah. I know where you're going. I'd, yeah. I'd cut my own head off. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you for the time, Ari, as always. Ari Goldkind has been with us, Toronto defense lawyer, talking about Paul Bernardo, uh, Paul Bernardo going before a parole hearing today with uh, zero chance of getting out. Ari, thanks for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. Pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pride Toronto has decided to open the door to the Toronto Police Service to rejoin the parade after a two-year ban, pending, of course, the typical uh, applications to such. Here's what Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders had to say about all the decision. This is just a start to a much longer journey. We're not where we need to be yet, but as chief, I promise you, the Toronto Police Service will do anything and everything we can to get to where we need to be and to maintain that. All right, to talk more about all of this, uh, Olivia Nuema uh, is with us, Executive Director of Pride Toronto and on the line with us now. Olivia, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me, Scott. So what has been the response to let the Toronto police back into the parade? Well, I guess it depends on who you are. Um, I think the majority of the responses that we have had have been very positive. All around, people who stuck with this organization for many years through difficult conversations um, continue to feel very positive about how we develop conversations and then how we sort of try to work our way through them. And so, you know, for the most part, I think it's been uh, positive. And of course, there is uh, a section of our community, and that section is the one that's most affected by. Uh, the relationship with uh, the Toronto Police Service or police services in general, who perhaps feel a little more trepidatious about um, inviting them back into the parade when it doesn't really feel, uh, well, you know, where they haven't really felt like there's been any real difference in their actual lives. 
So there still is some resistance to this decision. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There still is a sense that we should be waiting for the outcome. We should see what the outcome is before um, we invite them as opposed to starting that process this early on. Uh, how do you bridge that gap? How do you how do you further those discussions? Uh, will there be those that will always feel that way and not want them in? Um, I think that there will definitely be all there'll always be those who will feel like there needs to be sort of root and branch transformation of the organization before uh, trust can be built. Um, but at the same time, I've always asserted that the way in which we make sure that change happens the way we want to see it is by sitting around the same table and making sure that whatever happens next involves everybody. And the only way we can do that is by sort of, you know, uh, committing ourselves to a partnership now and doing doing work in real partnership um, is, uh, you know, what goes against the grain of that once that work has begun is any notion of banning or not allowing access, even if those reasons are relevant and right, um, what we are doing is focusing on how we create real solutions to some of these problems. How did we get to this band, especially when yeah, I, I remember when this happened, lots were th- that were opposed to this, you know, we're saying this is all supposed to be about inclusivity and yet you're excluding a group. How to to refresh people's memories? Why did the ban happen in the first place? Well, in 2016, um, Black Lives Matter protested um, at our parade. And what they were trying to highlight was some of the ways in which um, police practice disproportionately affected members of the LGBTQ2 plus community. They raised those concerns, rightly so, because there was and continues to be a problem that we need to address. I think through those conversations within our community, there was definitely a sense that more deeper conversations needed to be had about what the nature of their inclusion in our parade was before we kind of moved forward. And I think every member of the organization agreed that that had to be the case. I guess what happened between that moment and now, and certainly our AGM was once um, we had our AGM. There was, uh, you know, a vote then put onto the floor um, that, again, not that the police be banned, but that floats be banned. Um, as an organization, we felt that more conversations needed to happen about what moving forward was going to look like before we could look at working together again and then participating in our parade. So for two years, that's what we did. And we believe we've arrived at a place where we're going to move forward together. And that can't happen if we are putting up um, criteria about what inclusion and exclusion looks like in the context of our, of our parade when we're actually doing real work to solve the problem. So why now? What would Is there something that triggered this? Is, is it uh, just a general slow progression and understanding each other's side? Why now? You know, um, I'm pleased you put the question that way, because a part of it is definitely you get to a place where you decide we're going to move forward together. And for sure, our the way in which our parade happens, it's in cycles. You know, we have a festival in June. Um, In September, October, we start planning uh, for that festival. We start planning the sort of parts that go into delivering it. 
And one of those conversations is about the police and their participation or not. And what that's going to mean for our organization, we are very, very small. There are only five of us. And so we have to think about everything we need to deal with in order to put this uh, festival on. And one of those things is the police. And so when we decided that we were going to work together collaboratively, um, it seemed then if we were going to make that decision, then we also needed to make a decision about the nature of their participation. And that happens to come at the moment we start to plan the festival. And that's right around now. Was it the banning of uh, was it the banning of police and then the conversation that ensued after that, the changes of attitude that, that was a catalyst here? Or was it the MacArthur yeah. investigation? How much did that play into yeah. this? You know what? That played a great deal into this. Um, I am at pains to say to people that the LGBTQ2 plus community um, uh, has an innate understanding of being the targets of violence. Um, I, extreme or the sort of daily targets that form what is hate crime. So certainly when you know, a trans woman of color went missing and perhaps there was issues about how that was investigated. A young woman named Tess Ritchie also um, was murdered and there was issues about how that was investigated. And then when Andrew Kinsman went missing and Bruce MacArthur and the question of whether or not, whether the alleged serial killer Bruce MacArthur, um, how his sort of, um, you know, MO revealed itself over time was very clear that we needed to work better together to avoid such things happening again. And so for both Pride Toronto and the Toronto Police Service, the notion that these these specific incidences were the incidences that made us have to think about what it meant what it meant to work together was exactly why we decided that now was the time. Uh, in regards to the MacArthur case, and you talked about, and I'm trying to be as sensitive as, as I can here, Olivia, so, you know, excuse me if I stumble here. Um, uh, obviously, the situation in and around the MacArthur case, and, and we all know what happened after that once the investigation was started, and, and my goodness, how that, how that progressed. Um, does it change the discussion? Because we, we talk about, and you, you were mentioning being targeted, uh, you know, certain segments of this community being targeted and this sort of thing. Does, does it matter? Does it change the discussion that MacArthur was from the community? Um, an honest answer to that? No. No. Um, what ostensibly changed this discussion was less that he was a member of the community and more the assumptions that were made about who, who this person, before it was even a Bruce MacArthur, who this person might or might not have been, and how long it took mm-hmm. for that to reveal itself over time. Because you have to remember that these men had gone missing and the community had been talking about it for at least six to eight years before Bruce MacArthur was eventually um, charged with these crimes. And so... What the real question for the community is, how do we capitalize on that five or six years where the community understood that there was an issue of safety within it? They felt that that was the case. They pointed out that these men were missing. They pointed out that there were issues about them being linked. And perhaps we were not heard. Now, for some people, not being heard is the point at which, you know, perhaps you become even more polarized. For me, it's the point at which you decide that the crisis is worthy enough 
of everybody sitting around the table and trying to find a solution, hmm. which is where we're at now. Did the community way back when realize that this was someone from, or, or think that this was some, someone from outside the community? And, and what was the reaction when they found out it wasn't? Um, I don't know that the community had any notion of whether it was somebody inside or outside the community. Mm-hmm. And I think the important point to make I here guess my point is, I'm making, Olivia, yeah. here is that, you know, we're trying to, to alleviate the targeting, but it seems odd here because you would think it would be someone who is outside the community who would be targeting them from a hateful perspective like this. It's, it's odd that it's someone within the community. Well, that then takes us to our second question about you know, and I'll put Andrew Kinsman aside for a moment, even though he had very similar traits to the seven men previous, which was they all had particular characteristics, right? Uh, they were brown men, the seven of them anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, they identified as a, as, as a certain part of the community. They identified with a certain, uh, they, identified, they identified closely with a certain part of the community. Now, whether you're inside or outside of the community, uh, issues around being targeted, and especially if you're a person of color, whether you're inside or outside of the community, I'm not sure that anybody really cared. Mm-hmm. Uh, their main focus was, how is this stopped? You know, when, if for anybody who sort of engages in crimes like that, um, you know, it can be anybody. Yeah. Uh, you're being a member of the community or not being a member of the community um, makes no difference to the outcome. And so for community members, being a member of the community doesn't give you a pass. Neither does it stop you from being an, a, an object of suspicion. Um, in this case, the community cared much less about um, uh, how, how you know, a potential murderer might identify and cared more about the fact that it was a murderer that needed to be that needed to be stopped. And the second thing I'll say about that is, if it was such that there were no assumptions made about who this person may or may not have been inside or outside of the community, one of the things we want to talk to the police about is how it is we sort of move forward in understanding that violence is violence mm. and crime is crime and murder is murder and. Uh, the, the the sort of investigatory tools that take place if it's somebody outside of the community need to be even more present inside of the community where people like the alleged serial killer Bruce MacArthur can hide much more easily because somehow, you know, the same sort of uh, investigative perspective doesn't apply to the community because somehow we operate differently. We are all very similar in that we want to be kept safe. Olivia New Emma is with us, Executive Director of Pride Toronto, talking about uh, Toronto Police uh, can now apply to be back into the parade. Olivia, what about blowback from groups regarding your decision to let them back in? Has there been some blowback from, uh, for example, Black Lives Matter, who, as you mentioned, initially had stopped the parade? You know, certainly there are members of the community for whom their relationship with the police is deeply, deeply, deeply rooted. Um, and um, an announcement about the start of conversations uh, isn't enough. And we understand that as an organization. I understand that as an individual. Um, but, you know, what I, uh, what, I'm, what I want to impress upon uh, these members of the community is that what we are trying to do is make sure that we find a solution to the, to the problems that we face so that they never happen again. And I appreciate that those are going to be difficult conversations to have, but I am ready to have them. 
Are you worried that some may think that other organizations are using the Pride Parade to advance their own agenda, which not which may not necessarily be the views of the broader community? Yes, I absolutely think that. I think that Pride, you know, Pride is a parade. It's a festival that's born out of protest. Um, we aren't the same community if we aren't trying to grapple with a variety of different perspectives and give them equal weighting and equal validation, which we are doing here. But for sure... Um, we have a lot of work to do uh, to gain the trust of community members who uh, feel alienated by not only by sort of the historical actions of the police, but feel alienated by the decision Pride Toronto has made. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Uh, some uh, said way back when that Black Lives Matter were taking over your parade using the community's cause to draw attention to their own uh, organization. Your thoughts on that? My thoughts on that are that Black Lives Matter, not only in Toronto, but all over the world, have made significant, significant changes to the way in which uh, communities of color and particularly black communities um, are perceived not only by institutions that exist to support and, and sort of take care of these communities, but also by the way in which they're treated on a daily basis. Um, Pride Toronto feels lucky that uh, Black Lives Matter raised these issues at our event. We feel lucky that we've been able to generate a conversation, and we also feel incredibly lucky that we have managed to get to a place where the Toronto Police Service recognize there's an issue, are trying to institute cultural change themselves, and are willing to be accountable for the outcomes of whatever happens next. How is the Pride organization feeling today? This is a pretty big day. Yeah, you know what? Um, uh, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, it's incredibly heartening. But of course, we listen to the voices within our community, and particularly those that are uh, unhappy about the decision that has been made. And we will be seeking to address all of those issues in the coming days and weeks. Obviously, this festival, this parade, a huge draw to Toronto from all over the place. Uh, are you expecting... Uh any different situation this year than last year? Are you expecting more? Are you expecting less? Do you think this, in allowing the police back in, will affect festivities this year? Um, I think so. You know, I, I would be uh, not being truthful if I said that it wouldn't. Um, certainly after two years of uh, the police not participating in our parade, after what has happened over the last 12 months, um, after the sort of uncovering of, uh, you know, the potential of, of a serial killer, um, and last year's celebration being kind of a, a much more somber one. Um, we're moving into 2019, celebrating 50 years of Stonewall. Um, we, we definitely expect this to have a, 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 a sort of interesting and different look and feel next year for sure. Uh, the, the police chief, Police Saunders said, uh, Police Chief Saunders said, we're still not where we need to be. Where do we need to be? What has to be done moving forward? How can we use this as a catalyst? Yeah, so that's what we're trying to do now. There are a number of there are a number of things that are being done, not only by the police service to show their renewed commitment to LGBTQ two plus communities, but also by Pride Toronto, who recognize that this issue is a whole community effort. And so we will be working with a variety of LGBTQ two plus organizations who deliver frontline services to the communities we're trying to affect and ensure that we're all sitting around the table developing a plan 
as to how it is we we sort of get to a place where when we're asking the community if they feel like there's a substantively different relationship with the Toronto Police Service, we're able to kind of hear that, yes, there has been change. And that will happen as a result of developing a kind of a, a, a sort of national-wide advisory group, having a look at this work from across the country, developing, taking out the best practices that happen in other parts of Canada and having a conversation about whether they would work here and then starting to look at that practice and implement it in our own community. Olivia New Emma has been with us, Executive Director of Pride Toronto. Olivia, congratulations. This sounds like uh, it's a great step forward. And as you mentioned, lots lots of work to be done, but uh, certainly a strong first step, which should uh, be reflected in uh, this year's festivities. Congratulations moving forward. Good luck. Thank you so much, Scott, and thanks for the time. I appreciate the time you've given me to have this conversation. It's been incredibly helpful for us. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate that. Olivia Newemma, Executive Director of Pride Toronto. Great news for them in that city and the police services there. Uh, They have come to an agreement, and, of course, the two-year ban uh, is now over, and uh, relationships a lot more positive moving forward, which is great to see for all involved. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.